I'm Sam Mitchell, and these are my stories. Hi, folks. Having a good day today. Let me be the first welcome you to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Now, before we begin, I must know that I am not a doctor psychiatrist. If you're a star Don, you speak diagnosed with autism, please see a physician. I only speak based on my experiences. I also not own the right to these music. Both music was found on YouTube and were published on December 2019 and July 2018. Now, I also have a couple of shouts to give. The first shout out I must give is to Olaf Alwiston Apo, aka the owner of the Amenia Musings podcast. This young lady is so amazing. She is not only runs a podcast, but is an actress. Olaf Alwiston Apo, who has been in the British films The Stranger, Tin Star, and Kindness. Her podcast is called The Many Musings Podcast and covers topics people usually like to talk about, such as fertility, abuse, and disabilities. The final shout, or the next one I must give, is to Wendy Y. Bailey, a.k.a. the owner of the Ignite 2 Impact Podcast. Another shout-out is to Wendy Y. I was on her panel for Mental Health Month. Her podcast is called Identity Ignite 2 Impact Podcast. She is a world-class business and sales coach and international thought leader and sales speaker. The panel I was on will be out on October 10th, so check it out. Now, today, folks, we have a very special treat and a guest that I am so excited to have on my show, Temple Grannon. She is one of the most respected and well-versed individuals in both autism and animal. As a matter of fact, because Dr. Grannon understands those with autism so well, this has in turn helped her to understand animals in a way that very few can. Dr. Grannon herself was diagnosed with autism at the age four, the same as me. Although her early life was tough, gone on to write several books, scholarly journal articles, in the agriculture world, gives speeches all over the world, has done a TED talk like I'm going to do next year. And there's even a movie about her called Temple Grand that is the story of her life. Dr. Grand is a currently professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University. For some who did not speak until they were three and a half years old, Dr. Grand has beat the odds. She is on a mission like me to take away the stigma off autism and show through hard work those who are on the spectrum can be independent, successful, and often genius in their own line of work. My mom and I especially hold Dr. Grand in high regard because of her accomplishments. She allows those with autism and those who have autistic children to watch her break down these barriers. Dr. Green, it is truly an honor to have you on my show. Welcome and how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How about yourself? I am doing all right. So my first question to you is what does having autism mean to you? Well, I'm, it's made me an extreme visual thinker. In my book, uh, Thinking in Pictures, I talk about how that helped me with my work with animals because it was obvious to me to look at what the animals were seeing. And cattle, when they're going in a chute to get vaccinated, they'll, uh, you know, block at a shadow, um, a chain hanging down, a coat on a fence, little things that most people don't notice that animals notice. So being a visual thinker, that definitely helped me in my research. I think if I've learned visually too, so I'm with you on visual thinking. I mean, some I can hear, but then some I just have to see it to believe it. You know what I mean? No, and I had a terrible time with algebra. Algebra, I just didn't understand that because it was nothing to visualize. Exactly, that's me. That is me, Mr. Mrs. Grand. Geometry is better. That helped me Geometry will be better. Go ahead and do geometry. Even calculus might be better. See if you can skip algebra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what were your initial thoughts when you learned that you had autism? Well, when I was a little kid in the 50s, um, I didn't really know until I fully what I had until I was you know, in uh, junior high school. You know, I was 13 years old or so. Little kid, I knew I had speech delay. I had no um, speech until four. I can remember a lot of the speech therapy I had and a lot of emphasis they had on teaching me how to wait and take turns. That's such an important thing that teach young children with autism. How do you wait and take turns at a game? Exactly. I'm going to ask you a question about that here in a, in a little bit, actually. So, But for, I want to know this, too. How do you think our brains operate? Well, we're bottom-up thinkers rather than top-down thinkers. 
people who think verbally make a big, make a vague kind of um, a general principle, and then you try, and then you try to put everything else into it. My mind sorts data into categories. Let's say, for example, when I was a child and I was learning that dogs weren't cats, I originally sorted by size because we had a lot of Labrador retrievers and golden retrievers and German shepherds in our neighborhood. But when the neighbors got a dachshund, I could no longer sort dogs by size. So now I had to find out why the dachshund was not a cat. She barked like a dog, she smelled like a dog, and she had the same shape of her nose as a dog. And then I learned how to sort dogs and cats that were the same size. Oh, that's and, really And impressive. then of course, horses are bigger, but cattle are pretty big too. Um, Let's look at some features that are different. The sound they make is different. Cattle have a tassel for a tail. A horse has a great big, um, you know, plumy kind of tail. That is really impressive. I heard that. And that is really like... It's bottom-up thinking. And the thing that's interesting is exactly how artificial intelligence and computers thinks. There's a com computer program that can diagnose melanoma skin cancer. And it was trained by showing it 2,000 melanoma lesions on people's skins and 2,000 um, other kind of... Uh, things. It's, it's taught with specific example. That's how artificial intelligence systems work. Wow. That, that's impressive. That, I'll, I'll be darned. That's really, really impressive and a really impressive way of thinking. So. Well, that's the way computers think. That's the way I think. You take specific examples and you sort them into categories. That's, that, I think we need to do that too. I think I need to do that sometimes. <laughs> sort of like a spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly. It sorts things into categories too. What is the most rewarding and most difficult thing about having autism? Well, I made me a visual thinker. I'm horrible at multitasking. It took me much longer to learn to drive. I did 200 miles on dirt roads before I did any traffic, and learning to drive was very, very important for my career. It's going to take longer because yeah, I've got problems with multitasking. So I've got to practice in really safe places for a long time so I don't have to think about steering and, and using the brake and using the gas that has to get into motor memory. Um, absolutely horrible at multitasking. I'd be terrible on the McDonald's takeout window. Um, jobs with a lot of multitasking would be really difficult. I also can't remember long strings of verbal instructions. I have to write them down. That's me. I mean, if you give me like a spreadsheet, like a side-by-side -side, like school project and it has steps, I'm like, all right, now I know what to do. Now it's long-term, but I'll get it. As long as I like have the list yeah. and I, they're written down for me. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. What advice would you give to someone who just learned they had autism? Well, if it's a three-year-old kid, if it's a real little kid and the parents just learn, it's really important to get an early intervention and get uh, teach, be taught speech, basic skills. Now, let's say it's somebody older that's fully verbal that learns they're autistic. Um, Einstein probably had autism. Edison was probably autistic. Maybe Michelangelo was autistic. Um, a lot of famous people probably had autism. I have lots of grandfathers come up to me and they discover that they have autism when the grandchildren get diagnosed. And that granddaddy may have worked for NASA. I had one grandfather from NASA tell me that half the people in the control room in mission control were probably on the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's probably true. Yeah, I think it is true. Go back and look at some of those old videos. I will. What was your childhood like? Well, actually, I was raised in the 50s, and I had a good elementary school childhood. We did lots of projects. My ability in art was always encouraged. My problems came in, the, in high school. That was the worst part of my life, bullying and teasing. I got kicked out of school for fighting. Ended up going to a special school that had a farm and spent three years uh, running their horse barn. Worst part of my life was high school with bullying. And the only places I was not bullied 
was where I had shared interests, you know, uh, shared interests in maybe something like horseback riding. Then I was not bullied. Yeah, you just got to find that similar interest in order to spread out, spread it out, I guess is the way That's to put right. it. When and what age were you diagnosed with autism? Well, when I was two and a half, I was taken to the neurologist and um, they didn't know what autism was. This was back in 1949. Uh, they checked me and made sure I did not have epilepsy. I was not deaf. So they just said I was brain damaged. And then later on in elementary school, the autism part came along. But I'm old enough to where most doctors didn't know what autism was when I was a child. Uh, but I, I had you. all of the classic symptoms. I almost feel like I hide my symptoms, but you would actually never know I had it unless you lived with me, believe it or not. Yeah, and the thing is, is that you go out to Silicon Valley, out to the major tech companies, half the programmers are on the autism spectrum. They tend to avoid the labels. Yeah, they, but I've been there and I've seen them and you might want to look at the old Bill Gates um, antitrust videos for the depositions. You want to see some interesting videos, type in Bill Gates antitrust depositions. I will. Where he's being questioned by lawyers. And when he's asked hard questions, he does a lot of rocking. I will. I will. But on the other hand, a person with autism keeps learning because as you fill up the database, that bottom-up thinking, you can then sort data into finer and finer categories. So Mr. Gates now is a very different person than he was back when those antitrust deposition videos were made. He's learned a whole lot. Oh, can I learn a lot from those videos or? Well, you might learn something from it, but the thing is the more information and more different things you learn and you put more information in the database, then the better you can think because you're a bottom up thinker. You got to fill up the database with knowledge. And then the search engine that's inside your head can find information uh, just like with the dogs you know in the beginning i sorted by size but then when the small dog came to the neighborhood i had to find other features that the small dog shared with big dogs like barking her smell and her nose shape i remember that and that's that's really still really cool in my head now what school did you enjoy the most out of the schools you went to well when i was in elementary school i loved art class shop class sewing class all the hands-on things in fact i've got a book now called calling all minds that's all about all the little projects i made when i was a child well airplanes parachutes kites i loved all the hands-on activities and one of the worst things schools have done is taken out hands-on classes they need to be putting that stuff back in when I was in high school, I rode horses. That was something I really liked doing. I um, also did electronics projects and model rockets. It was uh, you know doing all kinds of cool stuff. That's what I liked. Yeah, I get. It. And I'm not saying I'm not saying I disagree with you, but I think there are still some are. Like for my school, I know we have a a JAG class, Job American Graduates, where they make us do hands-on activities. So that's one. I know that's still existing. Well, and there's still uh, people interested in maker groups where you, they have a, just a room full of tools and all kinds of stuff that you can make all kinds of things. But we've got a lot of kids growing up now, they don't make anything. You know, if I hadn't had the hands-on classes like art, I would have just hated school. Yeah, I bet. So I think some people learn hands-on more often than well, that's paper right. and pencil. That's right. And I think I'm, I'm more hands-on, but paper and pencils, I think it still can be beneficial in some ways. Also, when I was a child, I was learning basic skills that some individuals today with autism aren't learning, like shopping and how to budget my money. You know, when I was seven and eight years old, I'd go and buy a comic book at the local store, and I knew exactly what my allowance would buy in the 50s, 50 cents would buy it. 
10 comic books, but if I wanted the 69 cent airplane, I had to save for two weeks. I was learning that when I was very young. And uh, I'm seeing too many kids today on the spectrum that are fully verbal, smart students, and they've never been taught how to go shopping or to budget yeah. money. There's some of these basic skills. That is very tricky to do because I'm not trying to bash anything, but it's like I step. I mean, it really, really is. Well, I was shopping, uh, you know, uh, when I was very young, but I've seen 16-year-old honor students where have never shopped. I ran into a girl at an airport that was 13 years old, and she'd never shopped, and I handled her a $5 bill, and I said, go across to that store and buy something, and she went and bought a drink and brought the change back, and that was the first time she shopped, and she found out she could do it. That's good. Good job challenging her. Well, I did. You see, what you got to do is stretch just outside the comfort zone. Then another lady in her early 20s who was doing some volunteers, uh, volunteer work uh, was afraid to call me. I wrote to her advisor and said, well, she needs to just try to call me. She yeah. needs to just do it. And then she found out that calling me wasn't all that scary. And she was very proud of herself for doing it instead of having somebody else do it for her. Yeah, we, we need to be challenged more often than we are That's in right. this world. What you got to do is stretch. You can't just throw the person into a ton of multitasking or a whole bunch of noise that, you know, chaos. I can think of some job situations that would never work, like a chaotic store at Christmas time. Uh, that's not going to work. Or Black Friday shopping. That's, that's right. That's, yeah, that's more so. That. That's a nightmare. Yeah, that's the kind of environment that's not going to work. You don't start a job if you're on the spectrum in a store that's going to be just crazy during the holiday season. It is. It's, I think it's ridiculous with Black Friday shopping sometimes. Well, I don't, I don't usually try to go shopping during those times. Don't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You also went to Franklin Pierce College. Yeah, Did you enjoy Franklin it? Franklin Pierce College. I majored in psychology. Did you so enjoy it? Franklin Pierce College. And then I ended up switching to animal science. And one of the reasons I got interested in that is because I visited my aunt's ranch. And students tend to get interested in things they get exposed to. You know, if I hadn't been exposed to cattle when I was 15, I probably wouldn't have been in the cattle industry. And then the other really important thing was learning to drive. Yeah, uh, that enabled me That enabled me to have a really, a, and still do have a career in the livestock industry because I can drive. That's good. I still struggle with driving to this day. I mean, it's a challenge. It really is. Now, are you driving at all or... I'm, I got my license, but I'm still working on it because of all the multitasking. Well, what you need to do is get out in some places where you can just practice, practice, practice away from traffic so that you can learn how to operate the car and not think about uh, right. driver's ed often pushes them into things just way too fast. I'll take that advice from you. You know, there's a lot of office parks now that are deserted because nobody's in the offices. Go practice. But just go out like for half an hour a day to really safe places and just practice. We got it. We'll do it. Yeah, that's what you need to do. All right, we'll do it. So now when I look at your movie, there was a guy on here who was really like your mentor. His name is William Carlock. So who introduced you to William Carlock? Well, he was in my school. Yeah, he was, um, he was at my school. You know, he was one of the teachers at, my, uh, at the high school I went to. And uh, he just started helping me. And we got to really know each other. And he was an extremely important person for me. He, I, he seemed like it to you and I watched the movie. Yeah. Now, sadly, he did die. Now, how did you process his death? Did you think it was different from a typical person? Because when I watched the movie, it just didn't. I know well, it was, I, was you know, I really missed him. And he was, um, he was a very, very influential person in my life. 
really help really important person. Got it. Now, doors are, you always mentioned that doors are very important to you. Is this something you learned from Carlock or was it? Well, the thing is when you're a visual thinker and you're thinking about something abstract, like what your future is going to be, one of the reasons why I had the door symbols is because it was something I could see and visualize. And as I got more and more information sort of in my database, then I used doors, you know, less and less. But I have to have um, something visual. I can't think totally abstractly. Me neither. Me neither. I cannot think abstractly sometimes for the life of me. What's, the be- what's your best subject in school? English. English. Okay, so you're more of a verbal thinker. But you're yeah, still going to be a bottom-up thinker, where a lot of people, it's top-down. Yeah, that, that is a difference. So we also read that you invented the hug box. So when did you invent the hug box, and what gave you the idea? Well, I got the idea from a cattle squeeze chute that was, I watched cattle being handled out by the next door neighbor's ranch next to my aunt's ranch. And they put cattle in a squeeze chute to hold them. And I noticed it kind of relaxed them. So I went and uh, built my own squeeze chute. And I, I describe all of this in my book, Thinking in Pictures. Um, that's my autobiography. I had terrible problems with anxiety when I was a teenager and all through my 20s. And using a squeezing machine helped to calm me down. My uh, pressure is calming for some people. For other people, it doesn't work. You know, this is why a lot of people like weighted vests and weighted blankets because it helps to calm them down. Ah, now, what about it makes makes it calm you down exactly? Well, deep pressure for certain people is just very calming. And Ah. I was one of the people where deep pressure was calming. Now, how does it work exactly? Well, it works just like a cattle squeeze chute, um, squeezes on the sides, and then I, I rigged it up with an air cylinder and air compressor so I could control it, and you know, I was able to figure things out mechanically. And that brings up another thing about sensory stuff. It's important for the person to control it. Like if there's some loud noise you don't like, like the vacuum cleaner, you might find it you'll be able to tolerate it better if you control it, where you turn it on and off. There yeah, where some, you're um, the boss. Uh, some people... Some kids where the vacuum cleaner went from the thing they hated the most to something they liked the most when they could control the sound. Exactly. The control is really important. Yeah, I bet. So now, just do you still use the hug box at all? If no, so, I don't. No, I don't. don't. Uh, I might have to build me one because I watch a movie with you with the hug box. That seemed really calm and cool and collective. Well, you can find the drawings online. Just use keyword squeeze machine. <laughs> I will. Yeah. So... Now, speaking of the senses you mentioned, you have a sensory process disorder. So what, what is the biggest sense that bothers you? Well, I still have problems with itchy clothes. Uh, a lot of the um, cottons have been made a lot cheaper. So, so there's some t-shirts that itch and some pants that itch, and I got to find stuff that doesn't itch. You know, that's still uh, somewhat of a problem. I don't really have much sound sensitivity, but I do have some auditory processing problems. Like if I'm in a really noisy restaurant, it's hard for me to hear the conversation. It still uh. is. I'll tell you mine is I don't like uh, my, sh- my shirt to get my clothes to get wet. It feels like a pinchy feeling. Well, I don't particularly like that either. You know, I mean, I had friends that would just be around, hang around all day in a wet bathing suit. I didn't particularly like that. I mean, like if it's trunks, I can handle, but like, like a wet t-shirt, mm-mm, nope. No, I don't want, well, I don't want a wet t-shirt on very long. That's for sure. Same here. You said this in your talk, and I'm curious, what did, you, what did you mean when you said you're mixing cats, dogs, and donkeys together? Well, that's, uh, what, what was I talking about when I said that? 
You were talking about like mixing, mixing things together is like too much for your brain. An expression like that would be used if you're mixing uh, things together that shouldn't be mixed together. Like for example, um, there's two kinds of visual thinking. There's the object visualizer like me, and then there's what they call the visual spatial visualizer who thinks in mathematical patterns. They should not be mixed together when you do a do an experiment. So that might be you know, cats and dogs, for example. But there are things that, that are, let's look at sensory disorders. One of the reasons why some of the research has not come out with very good results is because you need to be studying the sensory problems as to what kind of sensory problem the person has. Is it noise sensitivity, visual sensitivity, touch sensitivity, smell sensitivity? You need to group the subjects by the type of sensory problem they have, not mixing them all together. Take yeah. deep pressure, for example. It doesn't work on everybody. It's only going to work on the pressure seekers. And I was a pressure seeker. I would like I like the bed sheets really tight, and I'd get under sofa cushions. But there's other other people where deep pressure doesn't work. And squeeze machine is only going to work on the pressure seekers. That's what I meant by mixing cats, dogs, and donkeys together. Ah, uh, all right. Not it's just not anyone's the same. They're really not. Well, you, you, when you're doing a study, let's say in any any study, let's say you're testing some drug, any drug for anything. Maybe you find out that, that women react to that drug differently than men. And so it might be important to separate that data out. Another thing that might affect it is the age of the people. Definitely. See, these, are, these are variables in science. Let's say you're doing a drug study for any drug for any purpose, where variables that may affect the, how well that drug works could be age and uh, possibly whether they're male or female could affect how well a drug works. Yeah, it'll, it'll, definitely, it'll definitely be a difference maker. You said, you were talking earlier about how board games helped you understand taking turns and working with others. How did, how did it make you understand like taking turns and working with others? Like how did it make well, you process part, taking turns and working, working with others? Well, and I'm sorry about interrupting. This is part of uh, my problem with the slow processor and it's the multitasking. Right. I don't, I have a very hard time timing. I still interrupt and I know it's something that I do. But what, what turn taking has to do with getting along with others is that, okay, we have to take turns at a game, but we also have to take turns doing different activities. Let's say you're out playing with your friends and I just want to do one, one particular type of game. Then there's a point where the other kids may want to do a different type of game. You see, there you have to take turns or family activities. There was one family where every week they did some activity with the kids and there's three kids. So every third week, the autistic kid gets to pick the activity, but not every time because you got to take turns with the others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't have a hard time taking turns. I'm pretty laid back and chill unless it comes to something I love. That's where I struggle. But the other thing is that somebody else may not love the same thing as much as you do. And I had to learn that I couldn't just talk, keep talking on and on and on about carnival rides when I was in high school because that bored other kids. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I mean, if it was up to me, I wish the, I'm not saying I do this. I don't, but if it was up to me, I would, I could talk to everyone about WWE or professional wrestling. That would be like a day, a day and a conversational dream, I guess. Well, but the thing is, is that other people probably don't want to talk about WWE wrestling all day. Yeah. And it's okay to talk about that a little bit. It that's is fine. It but, is. but you take turns. Exactly. And it, and it makes a perfect element. I mean, I think, when you take turns, it works a lot easier sometimes as well. Well, and then Not- also, also when there's a shared interest, there's other fans of that type of wrestling. And this is where um, people that 
I was a Star Trek fan and I get together and talk to other people about Star Trek um, where a lot of people on the spectrum get along is friends who shared interests. Okay, WW wrestling could be one of those shared interests. It could be. It very yeah, well it could, could be. be. That's right. So now you once said in your book, Thinking in Pictures, which my mother owns, you said the only place on earth where immortality is provided is in libraries. This is the collective memory of humanity. What do you mean by this exactly? What did you mean by that quote? Well, because people's writings are in the library. Ah, all Things right. that people have written, books that people have written are in the library. The library is a place that preserves knowledge. Ah, I got and, you. And um, about uh, 20 years ago, well, more than 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, we had a gigantic flood that wrecked our library on campus. And I was very upset about books being destroyed. Uh, and this was just before stuff. everything went electronic, you know, because knowledge was being lost. And there were some valuable books like Lewis and Clark's original diaries were in that library. And they were able to save some of the books and freeze dry them. But the idea of not of the library being wrecked was that was very upsetting to me. You always say you think in pictures. What are the main advantages and disadvantages when you think in pictures? Well, the, the, you told, when you think in pictures, an object visualizer like me, you can't do algebra. Now, object visualization is very good for things like skilled trades. When I was out working on all my livestock stuff, I worked with many skilled trades people that um, definitely bought in pictures. People that could fix any kind of mechanical machine. They thought in pictures. Now, higher math. It's a problem. And I'm getting very concerned that our visual thinkers are getting screened out of school because it can't pass algebra. But there's lots of things that you can do without algebra. You can, where you just need the old fashioned up to sixth grade math, the way it used to be taught in the fifties, not the way they're teaching it now. Yeah. Teaching has changed a lot. I mean, my mom's a teacher and it has changed. Teaching has changed the way. Well, I went and looked up the first, second and third grade common core math. I hardly, well, I could understand what they were trying to do but it wasn't teaching me any practical math on, you know, that, it, that I actually could use. Yeah, that, that is true. Math, it can be tricky for us. You also changed the agricultural world, so we appreciate that. But can you describe to us what a double-track conveyor restrainer system is and how does it work? Well, it's a, yeah, it's a center-track restrainer system, and it's a conveyor system that cattle are held in at the very large meatpacking plants. It's a piece of equipment I developed. I have a lot of information on my website, grandon.com. Also, you can look up a video, Beef Plant Video Tour with Temple Grandin that shows it. I've worked also on animal welfare auditing for meat plants. I implemented the McDonald's animal welfare program. And 20, this is just about 20 years ago now, did a tremendous amount of work on greatly improving how slaughterhouses operate. And uh, that's stuff that, you know, that I've done. It made, it made a big improvement. You have. I've seen that. Now, speaking of slaughterhouses, how did you change slaughterhouses? Well, first of all, you have to manage your equipment. Um, people would let their equipment wear out, break. Um, the other thing is little things that people tend to not notice, cattle notice. You could have a paper towel, like a piece of paper like this, hanging down by the entrance of a slaughterhouse from a paper towel rack, and the cattle won't go in. Little things that we tend to notice, they don't notice. Because what I wanted to find out when I first started are cattle afraid of getting slaughtered? And I found that they behave the same way at the slaughterhouse as they behave on uh, going into a chute to get vaccinated. And when I saw the slaughterhouse, slaughterhouses on your movie, I noticed that that they 
some people didn't agree with you. I remember seeing that on your movie. How did you handle that? Well, there was a lot of things that people did I didn't agree with. I remember somebody who was a really good manager at one of the meat plants I worked with. He says, you always have to keep persevering. And the cattle buyer told me that trouble was opportunity and work clothes. You know, you just have to figure out another way to do something. You do. Just, just processing and figuring out new ways. That's, I think, our way of thinking sometimes. Well, the other thing is I'm seeing now with a lot of young people on the autism spectrum is they're not getting jobs. And uh, when I was at the special high school, uh, they let me run the horse barn. I learned how to work. Then I started sign painting business and I was selling signs I made. And then I started out my, um, my work in livestock, one little freelance job at a time. I worked at a feedlot construction company. Uh, but what I'm seeing when I talk to these grandfathers that discover that they're autistic later in life that grandfather had a paper route at age 11. He learned how to work. And that's another skill. Work and academics are not the same skill. Kids need to have chores. Then when they're about 11 years old, they need to get volunteer jobs. The great place for that used to be churches, but that's closed down now, where you're doing a task for somebody outside the family. And then get real jobs, like just working in a grocery store, just to learn some job skills. And yeah. this is where, where, where things are not going so well. There's too many kids... They're graduating from high school, even college, and they've never learned any job skills. Exactly. That's why I took Jack to help me with some job skills, to be honest with you. What have you done for a job? Well, I'm a, I run my dad's hay farm, so I help my dad, dad out with that. I okay. volunteer at the Family Life Center um, at our county. Okay, good. Okay, so you're doing things where you're learning how to do a task for a boss that's outside the family. That's important to learn. Yeah, we, we've done other stuff. And this, obviously, the podcast. So that's, I think, could be considered a job skill in a way. Yep, yep, that's right. And are you getting any advertisers on your podcast? couple, yeah. Yeah, you see, as you get traffic, you get a lot of traffic on your podcast, then you're going to, advertisers will just come knocking on your door. Yep, exactly. And I'm, I'm doing good, I think. <laughs> well, that's good. So... Now, my mom and I are fascinated with the cow dip system. Can you explain that system? Oh, oh the cattle dipping vat. Okay. Yeah. That's a technology that's not used so much today because they have um, other medications for treating um, uh, parasites on cattle. Um, but back in the 70s, before that was invented, they would have cattle swim through a dipping vat to get um, you know, various external parasites off of them and one of them was scabies. And at the time that my business started, we had a scabies outbreak in Arizona and every feed yard had to put in a dipping vat. Oh. And the projects that were shown in the movie actually was like two feed yards together. There was one called Red River and the other called McElhaney's. And, and they showed those projects. And I did have some people I had problems with. I can tell you being a woman in the man's industry in the early 70s was a much bigger barrier than autism ever was. And the scene there where bull testicles put on my vehicle, that happened. And where I had most of the trouble was with the foreman level of management, that middle management. It was not the owners of the feed yards and ranches. They didn't do that. It was the foremans that were bad. Yeah. And I did watch the movie, so I'm going to be honest with you. I laughed at the bull testicles, but not because at you, your expense. It was because I thought, why would they do that? And why would they take the time to do that? That was my question. Well, I don't know. The thing that well, I had to learn is that people do stuff like this and there's no good reason for it. Yeah, I, I'm not saying I'm like... People I do just some, do it to be mean. Yeah, I do, I do. I make some stupid decisions as well. So we all have those moments, I guess. 
you did like talk about early event, event intervention a little bit, but can you define early intervention and why is it so, so important to you? Well, you, they had to get me talking. They were, I was, they were doing speech therapy on me when I was uh, two and a half years old, teaching me my words. No, you've got to work with these little kids. You can't just let them sit in the corner and tune out. You've got to work with them. And I had a very good speech therapist working with me. And I tell parents that if you have three-year-olds that are not talking, the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. And don't wait two years for a diagnosis. You've got little kids that are not talking. Once you rule out that their mouth and throat doesn't have something wrong with it, you got to work with them. You the therapies are pretty much the same, regardless of what the diagnosis is. You got to work on getting that kid talking, also learning basic skills, dressing, how to eat with utensils, bathing, uh, using the toilet, brushing their teeth, just basic skills. Yeah, because doing basic skills is a lot different compared to your academics and compared to other stuff, because that's the first step you need to do before you do anything. Well, yeah, I call it little kids, basic skills are the foundation of the house. They you are. Know, you've got to learn basic skills. We got to do them right and perfection, period. <laughs> I guess if that makes any sense. You once said that the comfort, you're talking about a comfort zone and you gave your kids, like you were going to give, like you, your aunt gave you a choice, your mom, sorry, your mom gave you a choice on whether or not you want to go to your aunt's ranch for a week or for a whole summer. Now, but my question is, if a child is struggling with a decision on how we make on like that choice, how do we make them not give that, give up? But also keep them in the comfort zone. Like how do we manage that? Well, what you have to do is you have to stretch just outside the comfort zone. You don't throw them into something like a Christmas store that's craziness, uh, multitasking, a super busy McDonald's takeout window. You don't chuck them into something like that. That's throwing them in the deep end. But you got to stretch just a little bit outside the comfort zone and give them choices. Because if I hadn't gone to my aunt's ranch, I wouldn't have been in the cattle industry. And just out of curiosity, did you stay for the whole summer or for a week? I stayed for the whole summer and I loved it. Once I, I got out there, I loved it. And this happens to a lot of kids. They'll say no, and then they'll uh, go to a summer camp and then they find out they love it. Yeah, you just got to give it that chance. You really well, do. you see, this is where you got to stretch. There's a tendency sometimes for parents to overprotect these kids. And when I suggested to one mom that her 16-year-old should go in a store and buy some printer paper. She started crying, saying she couldn't let go. This is a kid that had high grades in high school, and he had never gone shopping. He'd never had a bank account. This is ridiculous. It, it is ridiculous, I think. I mean, I mean, I have some limitations, Grant. I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying I can't do it, but she, I think we do. I think for the most part, I try to stretch out there, like you said. You have to stretch it. I remember when mother had me, um, we were remodeling the kitchen and I was very good at doing carpentry work, but I was scared to go to the lumber yard myself and mother made me go myself because what I was afraid of was talking to the, uh, the clerks in the store. Well, I got a little upset, but I came back with the wood and I found out I could do it. Yeah. So and she it writes wasn't... in her book that she wasn't sure whether that was the right thing to do to make me go to the lumber yard. But when I look back on it, it was the right thing to do. Yeah. And what, it wasn't as bad as you anticipated. No, it wasn't as bad. No, it wasn't. So you have to stretch. Yes, you do have to stretch. So now what do you enjoy about agriculture working? Well, I really, uh, you know, figuring out animal behavior. Um, I mean, I have to kind of use engineering skills and visualization skills to design and build a lot of the things that that I've designed. Uh, I really like problem solving. That's something I really like doing. That is something I, I like doing as well. I'm always a problem solver. I don't, I'm talking about who can't like move on to a problem solved. I mean, I work on that to this day. I mean, but it's hard for me. 
it's a part of me that I try to work on, but it's hard for me to just like move on. Like, no, let's yeah. solve this now, not wait till tomorrow. How did working in your school's horse barn, like help you understand work? Cause I know you mentioned that helped you understand like work skills. Well, there's a responsibility. I had to put the horses in and out of the barn. I had to clean nine stalls every day and feed them. And it had to be done every day and it had to be done every day at a certain time. There's a responsibility there. Yeah. I like That's to be a work skill. Yeah. I like to be responsible too, but I think sometimes I'm not saying like I'm a slacker, but I'm human and I make mistakes. Well, you know, but the thing is, is that there's a responsibility. Um, you have to do the work every day. You That's do. what you have to do. You got to put in the effort every day that you, like it's your life sort of. And you got to be there on time every day. Yeah, my, I'm in a CEO class right now. That's teaching me on time because I have to be there at 6.45 in the morning every day. That's right. You got to be there. I That's do. a work skill. I do. So and now, maybe it's really cold. Yeah. This school was in New Hampshire in the wintertime it got cold and you still got to be, be there every day and clean the stalls and feed the horses and let them in and out of the barn. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think if you got like a fever or something, I mean. Well, no, there's a point where if you're really sick, obviously you don't go. Yeah. But um, then, you, then you have to tell them that you're sick. Yep. Exactly. Or if you test positive for COVID, you certainly don't go. And then you've got to call somebody or text them or something and tell them. Yeah, you got to. So now I know you want, me, once mentioned that it's important you think these days have manners. Why is it important in your opinion to have manners these days? Like, why is it like one of the priorities? Well, I think it's a big priority. Well, it helps you to get along with other people if you're not a filthy, dirty slob. And it's, it's part of helping people just to get along. You hold the door open for somebody. You say, please and thank you. That's acknowledging them. Um, it just helps people to get along. And in the 50s, every kid was taught manners. It wasn't just me. That was taught to every kid. And that's one of the reasons why those grandparents have got, got jobs and were able to keep them. Exactly. Do you think you still see kids have manners these days or do you think it was better in the 50s? Well, in the 50s, what tended to happen, I was nonverbal as a three-year-old. I could not talk at all. I was a kind of a kid in the 50s they used to just put in an institution. But the kids that had no speech delay, just socially awkward with no speech delay, the Asperger type, most of those got jobs because manners were taught. They teach you how to act in social situations. Like, for example, if I stirred my water with um, my finger, mother would say, use the spoon. Grown-ups were always correcting children. Go in a store and touch too much stuff, they'd say, you only can touch the stuff you're going to buy. You see, those things were just taught. And then it just finally just got to where it was just like a habit. And I didn't even, you know, think about it. Because that's the way all the kids in the neighborhood were, were taught. I bet so. Now, And, and um, it wasn't uh, the way it, things were in the 50s. We had um, sit-down meals where you had to have manners. But then we had lots of time where we could just go out in the woods and build tree houses and just make up our own games. Lots of times for free play and creativity, too. Yeah. I think it's what we lose sometimes. I don't think some people are, are as creative as they once were. No, they're not. And also a lot of kids are too afraid to make a mistake. And I had a teacher just ask me the other day when I showed her a paper snowflake I'd made. In fact, it's right up here. From In my book, uh, Calling All Minds, one of the things that they can do is make a paper snowflake like this out of a piece of printer paper. And I held this up and I showed it to a teacher and she says, well, what's going to happen to the kid's self-esteem if the snowflake falls apart? And I go, well, you need to figure out how to do it. You get another piece of printer paper. And then now today, maybe then you look it up on YouTube and find out how to do it. So you teach the kid how to do that, how to figure it out for yourself. And 
hands-on things teach practical problem solving. I think they do. The other thing they had to get after me was uh, hygiene and bathing and uh, not being a filthy slob. There's that scene in the movie where the deodorant gets slammed down. That scene actually happened. Yeah. And at the time, I was really angry at the boss. Then I thank him for it now. Now, you yeah. just can't be a rude, filthy, dirty slob. You can't. I mean, you can't sometimes. Now, you're also, like you said, you've experienced bullying. When did you start experiencing bullying? Well, I managed to get through elementary school without bullying because the teachers explained to the other students that I had a, that I had a disability that wasn't visible like a wheelchair. So elementary school was really good, but high school was absolutely horrible. But there's a lot of kids today getting bullied in elementary school. And what the teacher did on explaining to the other children is what they call peer-mediated intervention. That's a fancy name for Mrs. Deach, my teacher, explaining that my handicap wasn't visible, you know, like crutches would be visible, and that the other kids needed to help me. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. So now also you've, told, you've told, talked about a situation where you, when, you're, when you were 14, you threw a book at a kid, and, and I'm just going to say, I think, and he did, and I think it was rightfully so, because I think I know the reason, but, and you did. Well, she told me a retard. That's why I threw a book at her. Yeah. And rightfully so, I think you did the right thing. I'm, I shouldn't, I know I shouldn't be promoting that, but I think you did. But, but looking back on it now, do you regret it or no? Well, it's something I shouldn't have done. And one of the things I had to do is I had, I switched from anger to crying and I, that that's a better way to deal with it because you go to jail and get in all kinds of trouble for hitting people. And uh, well, there's a lot of NASA space engineers that when the shuttle was canceled, they cried. You might want to look it up on 60 Minutes. It's the saddest thing you ever saw. But if those guys had been throwing tools, they wouldn't be working for NASA. Just that simple. Yeah, I bet. No, I think yeah, bullying was really, you know, a it real problem. There's some kids where I think they have to be removed from high school. Uh, then they need to get jobs. See, this is the other thing. I'm seeing kids with really good grades graduate from high school graduate from college, and they can't make it in the workplace because they never learned any work skills, which are different than academic skills. Yeah, they are. They really are. I mean, it might help you for a job in the future, granted, but it's really different at the same time. Now, on the flip side, did you make any friends at all? Did I make friends where? And anywhere. Oh, yes. I had friends in high school. It was all through the shared interests. Friends through shared interests. For me, it's horses, electronics, and model rockets. For another kid, it might be band or music or theater or art or robotics. Friends who shared interests. Yeah, that, that is, I think I find some people who have shared interests, but I find others at the same time. I mean, should we find others too? Like others? Well, most of them, you know, and then there were, we did skiing when I was at that school. And, you know, usually I had pretty good time skiing and the bullies didn't tend to do much skiing. Yeah. You know, the bullies didn't tend to do a lot of stuff. Then usually when we were out skiing, I was fine. And the places that were bad, cafeteria, parking lot, that's where I got bullied. Yeah, just when, no, when you had no supervision. That's right. Now, I got a question. I also want to know, who was in the movie Temple, there was someone like blind? Like, who was that really? Was that? That like was a roommate I had uh, that when I was in graduate school. In the movie, they moved her to college. But I did have a blind roommate for two years. She was one of the best roommates I ever had. And she was shown really nicely in the movie. She really was. Now, yeah. about your book, when you wrote Developing Talents, Careers for Individuals, Individuals with Asperger's and High-Functioning Autism, what were you trying to make your readers understand? 
I wanted, wanted them to understand that, you know, people need to go out and get jobs. And then I also talked about the different kinds of thinking. You know, that some people on the spectrum are the object visualizer like me, which is shown perfectly in the HBO movie. Then you have the mathematician kind of mind, and then you have the verbal thinking mind. And in my book, The Autistic Brain, I provide, I present science, scientific studies that show that these different kinds of minds exist. And since this was published, uh, more and more science has come out on this. They do. I think they are starting to. What we need to be doing is developing the area of strength and start thinking about what could the child do as a career. Visualizers like me, very good at anything to do with industrial design. You can actually, it's a college major called industrial design. Um, anything like a high-end skilled trade, plumbing, electrical, um, welders who can read blueprints, car mechanics, truck mechanics. These are all great COVID-proof jobs. They're also recession-proof jobs. And then you have the mathematical minds can go into things like computer programming. And the verbal thinkers are good at writing and also things like what you're doing right now, kind of broadcast media. Yeah, like what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a verbal job. Can you tell me, you said humans and animals are similar in some ways. Can you tell me how? Well, the nervous system is similar. They are, um, uh, they have emotions. Um, they see, they hear. The main difference between us and animals is the size of the cerebral cortex. And animals do not have symbolic language the way we have. Gotcha. But your dog is definitely conscious, has feelings, has things it wants, like to get petted, to get fed, to go play with other dogs. Yep, that, that does make sense. What can we take from your book, The Unwritten Rules of Social Relationships? Well, I, I did that book with Sean Barron. And, um, you know, there's things, there's purely social stuff that I kind of don't get. I'm, I'm sort of like I am what I do. Yeah, and what? I, I understand. My sense of identity is tied up in what I do. Scientist, uh, designer, animal behavior specialist. And there's a lot of social stuff that people just do because people like being social that I kind of just don't do. Ah, like what are some of them? Can you give me an example of one? Well, I'm amazed when um, I, I went out, when I go out to dinner sometimes from other people, social chit chat that has no information in it. It might be sports themed chit chat but they're having an absolute marvelous time at it. Ah, okay. I got you. So now we also obviously wrote the movie about you, Temple Grandin. What yeah. was your favorite scene in the movie? Well, I love the fact that they showed how my visual thinking works and all my projects are real. And all the main characters were shown really nicely. Uh, and they showed all the kind of engineering stuff I did. I really liked that part of it. Gotcha. Were you a huge part of the movie making? Well, I was very involved in working with the producer and the writers. And then I also worked with them to make sure that all the cattle were shown accurately. Good. I think, I think sometimes like celebrities of celebrity movies, like movies about celebrities need to be there in order for them to see like what's going on. Well, I've worked a lot with the writers and I, and I talked a lot with the director and the producer and the writer. Now, you think the movies could have made any improvements at all? Or do you think it was just pretty, that no, really No, I did a, you know, I'm not going to, yeah, they did a really good job on them. That's when you get somebody in a project that wants to do things right. And Mick Jackson, the director, was a visual thinker. And that's one of the things that helped to make it come out good. And then we had a really good writer, too. And a producer, Emily gerson Sainz, was the mother of an autistic child. And she wanted to make sure the movie was done right. Good. Good, good, good. It was a pretty good movie. It's actually one of my favorites now, believe it or not. So now... What do you mean exactly when you said we are different, not less? Well, sometimes people devalue people or things that are different. 
Now, simple and you're different, but you're just basically just as good as everybody else. Yeah, I think sometimes we get degraded, but well, one of the things that I had to do, I was very motivated in all my twenties, was I wanted to prove to the world it wasn't stupid, and that's one of the reasons why I worked so hard on that dipping vat project ah. that was shown in the movie. Gotcha. So now these questions are just to me for fun. So, so my first one is, what is your paradise meal, your favorite food, and why is it your favorite? Well, I always like, um, you know, raspberries and chocolate and things like that. It's one of my favorite things. Uh, raspberry and chocolate together, like yogurt? Yeah, I like or... them together, yeah. Uh, that's, pr- that's pretty, that sounds really good. Also, what is your favorite movie or TV show, and why do you like it? Well, I was a big fan of Star Trek, and I loved the logical uh, Mr. Spock. Also, a more modern show, I liked watching Big Bang Theory. Uh, big Bang Theory? Is your favorite, yeah, is your favorite character the, Sheldon? Well, yeah, of course, Sheldon. I thought you would. Now, also, what has been your favorite vacation that you have ever taken, and why do you enjoy that vacation very much? Well, I did a, a two-and-a-half-day trip to Cape Kennedy three years ago. I had the greatest time. I got to go to the vehicle assembly building, and I got to see a SpaceX launch, and I had a great time there. That was super, really fun. I bet it was. Now, what are some of your personal interests? Well, and always uh, one big interest now at the age that I'm at is that my students do well. I want my students to do well. I think that's really important. You know, earlier in my career, it was improving uh, how cattle are handled. Ah. I'm still very interested in that. Are there, do you think they made improvements or do we still oh, have yeah, a long ways to go? There's been a lot of improvements made in how cattle are handled. Big improvements. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but compared to 20 years ago, yeah, there's been really big improvements. Gotcha. So now... This is the final one, actually. Are there any good memories that you want to tell our viewers about? If you do, why do you remember that memory the most? Now, before you answer, I want a good memory and a funny memory or a funny story. Oh, okay. And uh, then I'm kind of going through the uh, database. This is where it's such a general question. I almost have a hard time accessing my memory. Um, I can get laughing about some really, really stupid things. And one of the things I had to learn is other people – might want not might not want to hear that story about the world's worst vomit flight, you know, six times. But I've been on it. I'll just leave the world's worst vomit flight to your imagination. Got it. Maybe that's something that's funny. And really good memories were, um, you know, completing a project that really worked, like that scene in the movie where the dipping vat system worked. Um, that was one of my early projects in my career. That was a super good memory. I bet it was. Well, I think that's it, Temple. Do you have anything? Okay, well, like great to, say? to talk to you. Thanks for waiting for this episode. Please tune in for another episode coming very soon. Hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble. Thank you very much.